0: you for tuning in to another episode of weird distractions podcast a weekly podcast where i your host alex rotate and discussing true crime cases paranormal stories folklore conspiracy theories a little bit of this and a little bit of that to provide you and more than likely what your local school board would consider a weird distraction from everyday life this week we are actually going back in time to one of the very first episodes of weird distractions and I am doing a re-release of it. I'm going to keep the original on the feed, of course, but I'm redoing the episode, and I have a bit of an update, so that's kind of why I wanted to redo it. And well, things have changed since the original episode came out. But before we dive into the episode, I do have a little bit of housekeeping, and I need to let you know what I need a distraction from. As always, if neither of these interests you at all, feel free to jump ahead about two to five minutes. But if you want to stick around, hear what housekeeping needs to be discussed, and what I need a distraction from, then feel free. In terms of housekeeping, there is a new Weird Spam episode out on the Here for the Weird tier over on Patreon. As a reminder, this $5 USD a month tier grants you access to this very comedic series. I refer to it uh, in this episode as Weird Distractions Light, <laughs> where basically me and a guest host or two read the weird spam emails we get. This month, it is just me over there, but don't worry, I do have some guest hosts lined up for future episodes. So definitely check that out. As well as the last Sunday of the month, I actually also release a bonus episode over on Patreon. So not only do you get early access ad-free episodes of just the regular stuff that, you know, you're probably listening to right now on the regular feed, but every month for both tiers, so they here for the weird and easily distracted tiers, you also get a monthly bonus episode. So that is the last Sunday of every month, whether you're on the $2 USD tier or the $5 USD tier, it's always a good time. I usually cover smaller cases or maybe cover stories that might not necessarily be the length of a full episode. Sometimes they actually exceed the length of just a regular feed episode, so it's definitely worthwhile to check it out. And once again, both tiers get access to that. You can find the show at www.patreon.com slash weird distractions podcast. Now my need for a distraction this week is well, I'm now twenty-nine and I am suffering from the January blues. I'm having such a hard time with getting motivated, staying motivated. I'm trying everything in my little toolbox to just get going, but it's hard. And I think it's just one of those things comes with the season, comes with getting older. I say as if I just turned 79 instead of 29. But yeah, that's my need for distraction. I'm going to keep it simple, keep it somewhat light, nothing too depressing or scary like, you know, fish from the deep, deep sea. But if you want to hear your need for a distraction on a future episode, feel free to send me a DM or shoot me an email. But with that said, I think it's time to get into this week's episode. So for this week's episode, which is a true crime case, I forgot to kind of introduce that. So yes, we are talking true crime. We are, as mentioned, taking things way back to the early days of Weird Distractions podcast. It's been almost three years since I tackled the case of The Boy in the Box, an unsolved murder case which has baffled an entire nation, if not the world. There has been a recent update with this case, and because of that, along with updated aspects of the podcast, I thought it would be an appropriate time to kind of discuss it again, bring it back to the forefront, and just, you know, get distracted from whatever you need a distraction from from everyday life in discussing this case. Due to potential coarse language and other adult themes that may be discussed today, listener discretion is advised. The the boy-in-the-box case takes us back to February 23rd of 1957 and to the woods within the Fox Chase neighborhood located in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Fun fact, I am going there this year. Not specifically to the woods, but to Philly. Um, So if you have any recommendations for Philadelphia, please hit me up, DM me, send me an email, let me know. Anyways, back to what we're actually discussing today. For those that are not from the Fox Chase neighborhood, from Pennsylvania, or the United States in general, Fox Chase is almost two hours east of the state's capital, being Harrisburg. On that February day, a described young male was supposedly in the woods collecting muskrat traps he had illegally set out prior to. Checking his traps and seeing what he maybe scored or didn't, this young man came across something along Susquehanna Road that more than likely startled him. And I may be bold in saying this, but what he saw probably stuck with him forever. He saw a J.C. Penney bassinet box, and within this box lay the remains of what seemed to be a young boy who was unclothed and beaten. Due to his already illegal activity, aka the muskrat traps, this young guy didn't stick around the situation. He actually dipped from the situation without connecting with local police. Jumping to a few days later, to February 25th, police would be notified of the young boy in the box. I will acknowledge in my updated research into this case, I did notice some discrepancies with how the boy's body was discovered. For example, some claim it was one person that discovered the boy, whereas others note it was two, with the other individual being a young college student who came across the scene and made the report to the police. So it's, it's a little bit either or. Like, I, I'm not sure what exactly per se happened, but nonetheless, it was February 25th, 1957, when police were notified about the boy in the box. Investigators would publicly describe the boy as being Caucasian, weighing around 30 pounds, and being about three feet tall. Interestingly, they also noted that this unknown boy's hair had been recently cut, possibly after death. This observation was made as there were alleged clumps of hair that clung to the body. As previously mentioned, the boy was found naked within the box, but there was a multicolored blanket located inside as well. There would be signs of severe malnourishment, as well as varying surgical and smallish scars on his ankles and groin, and an L-shaped scar under the chin. Further investigations discover that the boy had suffered from a head injury, which appeared to be the cause of death. Police did reportedly take the boy's fingerprints, which was great forensic evidence collecting given the time period this took place. Other forensic-based information, such as time of death, was allegedly a struggle bus for police to figure out due to the winter climate at the time the boy was found. Now, let's actually circle back to the box that this unknown angel was found in. According to reports, a serial number was discovered on said box, which was tracked to a JCPenney approximately 15 miles away. Police supposedly followed up with a store who confirmed that the box was for a bassinet that was sold to a total of 12 unidentified people. Now, some tuning into this case for the first time might be like, uh, what do you mean unidentified? Basically, these folks were considered unidentified because they all paid in cash. Therefore, there was no credit or debit trail behind the purchases, which I guess I should mention. I don't think debit cards came out until like the 70s. So this was way before then. So more than likely it would have been checks or any other kind of paper trail that someone could have left at that time. Yeah, that wasn't there. It was all paid with cash. So that made tracking a lot harder in comparison to, you know, today where everyone has a trail of some sort. So there's a bit of a dead end. And I can imagine that police were probably scratching their heads being like, "Okay, how do we get that information? How do we figure out who bought these damn bassinets? Which brings us to the media. When news broke of the young boy's discovery, local newspapers released 400 thousand posters as a way to try and figure out who the boy was. Police then put out a local call out to those who purchase a JCPenney bassinet, hopefully trying to get in touch with those 12 unidentified folks. Eight of the 12 of those bassinet buyers would apparently contact officers to clear themselves when this detail broke to the public either saying that they still had the box or that they put it in the trash. More than likely running on fumes at this point, police then turned to investigating the blanket that was found in the box in order to try and gather more clues to the boy's identity. The blanket was supposedly traced to being made in either Quebec or North Carolina, which that's a whole 1,642.9 kilometers between the two places. If you're becoming discouraged hearing this, that's totally valid as this seems to be kind of a needle in a haystack situation. Because there was basically no way to tell where the blanket was specifically manufactured or where it could have been sold and who it could have been sold to. Now let's focus back on the boy and the scene of the discovery. Reports claim that the location where the boy was found was looked over by approximately 270 police officers. During their research, they reportedly found a men's blue corduroy hat labeled Eagle Hat and Cap Company, along with a child's scarf and a man's white handkerchief with the letter G in the corner. Unfortunately, none of these discovered items really led anywhere in terms of further clues. Again, probably running on fumes and wanting to identify the boy, police released a post-mortem photo of the boy. Fully dressed and in a seated position, as he may have looked like in life, with hopes that this might lead to a clue. Unfortunately, it didn't form anything further right away. The unnamed boy would be buried in 1957, originally in a potter's field, which is where communities bury those unknown or unidentified. We've talked about these kind of grave sites in the past in previous episodes. Jumping 41 years to 1998, the boy's body was exhumed for the purpose of further extracting DNA, which was obtained from enamel on a tooth. He would then be reburied at the Ivy Hill Cemetery in Cedar Brook, Philadelphia, where a large plot would be allegedly donated. Furthermore, the coffin, headstone, and even the funeral service was donated for the Ivy Hill Cemetery burial, which dubbed this unknown boy as America's unknown child. City residents would continue to keep the grave decorated with flowers and stuffed animals as days, weeks, months, and even years would carry on. Speaking of, moving to March 21st, 2016, nearly 60 years after the boy was found. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children released a forensic facial reconstruction of the victim and added America's Unknown Child into their database. Two years after that, in August of 2018, Barbara Ray Venter, the genetic genealogist who helped identify and capture the Golden State Killer through using a DNA profiling technique, said that she was going to use the same method to try and identify the boy in the box. Which, when I covered this case back in 2020, that was kind of where I left things before diving into the projected theories. And I'm going to review the theories and then we'll get into the 2022 update. As mentioned, these are just theories and nothing as far as my understanding has been proven outright. The first theory that I'm going to kind of bring up again is the foster home theory. So this theory suggests that a nearby foster home located about 2.5 kilometers away from where the boy was left in the woods may have had ties to our unknown victim. In 1960, an employee of the medical examiner's office named Remington Bristow contacted a New Jersey psychic as a way to try and assist with the case through spiritual means. I think also maybe a little bit of a last resort. When the psychic was brought to the Philadelphia discovery site, she led Bristow directly to the nearby foster home ran by a man named Arthur. Upon attending the foster home, Bristow discovered a bassinet similar to the one sold at JCPenney, and he also allegedly discovered blankets hanging on the clothesline that were similar to the one in which the boy's body had been wrapped in the box. Based on this, Bristol believed that the boy belonged to the stepdaughter of the man who ran the foster home and that they disposed of his body so the stepdaughter would not be exposed as an unwed mother. Or, on the other hand, they presumed that maybe the boy's death had been an accident and his body had been disposed of in order to kind of cover it up. Who knows? It's very hard to say. It's based basically based on assumptions. Despite this circumstantial evidence, local police were not able to find many definitive links between the boy and the foster home. Fast forwarding to 1998, Philly Police Lieutenant Tom Augustine, along with several members of a group of retired policemen and profilers, decided to revisit the foster home lead again. The group reportedly interviewed Arthur, the foster home owner, and the stepdaughter, whom Arthur had since then married. The stepdaughter slash wife of Arthur allegedly did tell officials that she did have a son, but that he was no longer alive. Supposedly, this boy was electrocuted by one of those old nickel rides outside of a local store. Based on what I gathered, she was able to show the death certificate, which also kind of emphasized this narrative, which led to the demise of this theory. The next theory involved a man from Memphis. So in 2016, two writers by the names of Jim Hoffman and Louis Romano believed that they had discovered a potential identity or lead of a man from Memphis. They thought that they had a lead based on what a mutual friend from Philly had once told them. Allegedly, this guy from Philly told Jim and Lewis that his family once rented a home for a man who claimed to have sold his son around the time of the discovery of the boy in the box. This was presented to the Philly Police Department and a request that DNA be compared between this alleged Memphis man family member and the unknown boy be done. Based on what I gather, DNA was taken. They did try and do a match to see if this Memphis man or this guy from Memphis, let's just call him that, was in any relation to the boy in the box in which in December of 2017, police confirmed that the DNA was taken from the Memphis man and it was not a match to the body of the boy. Therefore, another diminished theory. The next theory that has been presented involves a mysterious woman only known as Martha or M. And this theory, unfortunately, is a bit more complicated than the previous two, if you can believe that. This one came in February of 2002 by a woman identified only as Martha or M, as mentioned. Martha claimed that her mother was abusive and had allegedly purchased this unknown boy, whose name was appropriately Jonathan, from his parents in the summer of 1954. Apparently, the boy was subjected to extreme physical and sexual abuse for two and a half years by Martha's mother. One evening at dinner, based on Martha's narrative, the boy vomited up his meal of baked beans and was given a severe beating, with his head being slammed against the floor until he was semi-conscious. He was then given a bath, in which during this period he supposedly died. These details match information known only to police and those directly working the case. So for example, the coroner supposedly had found that there were beans in the boy's stomach and that his fingers were water wrinkled. Martha claimed that her mother cut the boy's hair in effort to conceal his identity and forced her, being Martha, to help conceal the body in the fox chase area. During this time, Martha shared that a male motorist pulled up as her and her mother were getting ready to dump the boy's body out of the trunk. Martha was forced to cover the license plate by standing in front of it while her mother convinced the guy that everything was okay. Police reportedly did put some of their eggs in Martha's basket from a moment of time. However, due to her history of mental illness and subsequent treatment in a hospital in Cincinnati, They eventually took all of those eggs out of the basket and dismissed Martha completely, which in my opinion is a bit of a farce. Just because someone has a history of mental health and perhaps has sought out mental health treatment doesn't mean that you should discredit their statements right off the bat. Martha's narrative would see some poked holes when neighbors of Martha denied seeing a boy live at her home and dismissed the claims ultimately as being ridiculous, which is also kind of bothersome because maybe her parents, or at least her mother, were trying to keep this boy a secret. Therefore, how would the neighbors know? There was one last theory that I had mentioned in the original airing in the Weird Distractions edition of this case's coverage. This theory was formed by a forensic artist named Frank Bender, who allegedly indicated that America's unknown child may have been raised as a female. To be honest, this theory kind of holds zero water in my opinion and didn't necessarily really offer an actual identity. Because of this, I won't rehash it in further detail, but rather let's actually shift gears and talk about the 2022 update. <laughs> In November of 2022, the Philadelphia Police Department announced that the boy in the box had been identified. Basically, after years of DNA analysis and referencing geological data, they finally were able to get a match. On Thursday, December 8th of 2022, Commissioner Danielle Outlaw, which that's an amazing name, by the way, like Outlaw, chef's kiss, had identified the boy in the box, aka America's unknown child, as being Joseph Augustus Zarelli. Based on their research, Joseph was born on January 13th of 1953 and is believed to be from West Philadelphia. According to a Philadelphia Inquirer article by Wendy Ruderman, Joseph was supposedly born to an unmarried couple during a time when out-of-wedlock births were considered a societal shame. The article didn't really lean on this being the reason why Joseph died, but it was a weird tidbit of information that I thought I would acknowledge. I'm also a bit curious as to where this information was found outside of the article by Wendy, because to be honest, I didn't really see it anywhere else other than the article with Wendy. So I don't know, maybe she's got some some leads or some intel that others don't. Further from that article by Wendy, there allegedly was a name of a father on the birth certificate, but the name alone wasn't proof that this man was Joseph's biological father, which just pulls on the notion that even with Joseph's identity, we still have a lot of questions unanswered. Neither of the parents' names have been released, but that hasn't stopped some people to speculate even though it's been made very clear from officials that Joseph's mother and father are now deceased, and they haven't released any information about them. For example, on the website Find a Grave, which is one of my favorite websites, for Joseph's burial information, it points to an Augustus John Gus Zarelli and Cynthia Paschko Zarelli as potentially being Joseph's parents. However, on both of their Find a Grave pages, there is a bold statement emphasizing that there is no evidence of Cynthia or Gus being the parents of Joseph at this time. The evidence we do have and what made the DNA hit actually comes from one of Joseph's second cousins. This cousin, allegedly from Joseph's mother's side of the family, uploaded their DNA to GEDmatch. GEDmatch is a database that law enforcement and forensic scientists can access in order to try and solve cold cases. Other than the parental speculation, I did come across a CBS News article noting that Joseph does have siblings, both on the maternal and paternal side. But other than that, not much else was released about Joseph's short-lived life. And with that, let's wrap up this week's Weird Distractions episode. When it comes to the unsolved death of Joseph Augustus Sorelli, there are still so many questions. At the time I'm recording this, there hasn't been any... Further updates regarding any suspects, whether they will be charged, or whether they are still even alive. Furthermore, we don't have any confirmation as to who his family was and whether there are any family members who are still alive that may know what happened. What we do know is that Joseph was never reported missing, which is weird in my opinion. This case, like many other unsolved mysteries I've discussed on the show and ones that I haven't discussed yet on the show, have always kind of stuck with me. And when updates do come, I will do my best to discuss them on the show. Let me know your thoughts about the case over on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or TikTok, or shoot me an email. Also, let me know what previously covered Weird Distractions episode I should redo next. If you've enjoyed today's Weird Distractions episode, please consider telling your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else who will listen about the show. You can tell them to find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, Google Podcasts, Podchaser, and many more. If you're streaming the show on Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review. This helps the show out for free by letting others know that it's worth listening to. Another way to support the show for free and to never miss an update is to follow along on the show's various social media accounts. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter my handle is at WeirdDistractI1 and TikTok. If you want to financially support the show and get yourself a little something extra each month why not join one of the two tiers over on Patreon Each month you get exclusive content such as bonus episodes and series the weird destinations travel posts plus early access to the regular feed episodes you can find out which tier is best suited for you by going to patreon.com slash weird distractions podcast shout out to my current patrons aka my weird little family members tom bailey angela john alicia lynn susan shadow courtney jennifer and cheryl i love you all and appreciate your ongoing support of weird distractions if you're unable to support the show on a monthly basis but still want to support it maybe as a one-time donation, check out the show's merch over on Redbubble or sign up for a one-time donation over on Buy Me A Coffee. Lastly, I want to hear from you. As some long-time listeners may recall, Christy and I released two listener story-based episodes called Listener Distractions. I'd love to keep doing this series and hear all of your weird tales of ghostly encounters, unexplainable events, and too close-to-home true crime stories. You can email me your tales at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com. As well, send me feedback. If there are any corrections that need to be made after today's episode, let me know. And as always, if you need a distraction, I got you. Bye. Bye.